This message was recorded live at the Ark Church in Conroe, Texas. Good morning, good morning. Great to see you. Yes, I was born in Texas. All my, all my siblings were, we moved all over the world. Thank you very much. We moved all over the world. I went to five different schools in the first grade. We averaged about three schools a year growing up. We just moved all the time. But uh, all of my siblings, we were all born in the same small town in Northeast Texas. I, I think Texans are like salmon. They just go home to spawn. But, well, it's great to be here. I love coming to the Ark. I love this church. And I certainly love the Claytons and the leadership and the, the wisdom and ability that they provide. And uh, Alan does a good job, too. <laughs> I, I want to tell you that in the lobby there are these books. Uh, I've been here, this is now I think the fourth or fifth year I've come on this exact Sunday, the first Sunday in December uh, annually, and I, I look forward to it. Alan doesn't have to keep asking me back. He can, you know, answer to the Lord on that, but uh, I have the last three years I've premiered a new book. Uh, this year, I don't have a new book for that. I'm struggling with a book. If you, if you want to pray for me, you don't even have to remember my name. If you'll just pray, you can just say, Lord, help that idiot with that book. He will know exactly who you're talking about. But uh, the last three years, I premiered a book here, which then in the next year did very, very well. And so I think you have the anointing here for getting books started. But I have all three of these books in the lobby. This is 21 Seconds to Change Your World. This is about the, the Lord's Prayer and the 23rd Psalm. Uh, it's called 21 Seconds because that's about how long it takes to pray the Lord's Prayer. Unless you're in Alabama, it takes 45 seconds. And <laughs> this is Courage to be Healed. This is not about physical healing. This is about uh, healing of damaged emotions. It's been a tremendous seller for us, uh, and I hope you will find that. And then this is our huge book. This is David the Great. Uh, it has just exploded. I hear a man call out. He liked it. It's been huge seller for us and continues to be because we hit a market with it that are very hard to get to read. Men don't buy and read Christian books. And this book men loved. So uh, we're thrilled with that. It's a, why not? David was a man's man. So you can do all your Christmas shopping, get it all done in the lobby as you go out. I hope you'll buy uh, David the Great, Courage, and 21 Seconds. We also have them all. In, all these three are out there in Spanish, in La Lengua Celestial. So if you would like to have that as well. It doesn't matter to you to hear this. It matters to me to say it. I don't take one penny from the sale of any books ever here worldwide, royalties from the publisher, anything, or speaking engagements such as this. I am salaried elsewhere, and so I donate all this, everything. There's no smoke and mirrors. All of it goes 100% to the Foreign Missions Program at Global Servants. Particularly our, our girls' homes in Southeast Asia and West Africa. So I hope you'll go out there to the, I hope you'll go out there to the book table and spend yourself into bankruptcy. Refinance your house. <laughs> Steal the children's lunch money. Come on. <laughs> All right. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those, if you will, please, and turn to the uh, book of Judges. I want to read three passages of Scripture 
which may not seem on the surface uh, to be related. Uh, and, and I hope that by the end of the message that you will see how they relate. Then furthermore, I'm going to be talking about things historical. But I, I don't want this to turn into a, into a history lecture. But I, I hope you'll see how, how this all fits together as, as we go through it. But this is an unusual sermon, and I realize that I'm going to be talking about the God of the unlikely. And I want to talk about God's operation in human history as well as in biblical history. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Judges, the very last verse of the book of Judges, 2125. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, to us uh, Americans, that sounds positive. Everybody doing what's right in his own eyes. It is a very negative verse of scripture. It doesn't mean how that sounds. It means there was no presiding national ethos. Everybody lived in a, in a morass of moral confusion. And the whole book of Judges ends in moral confusion. And it's, it's, it ends horrible. It just oozes out into a, a delta of, of moral, spiritual, and sexual confusion. Then, if you will, just turn the page, literally one page, to the book of Ruth. Because the book of Ruth comes after the book of Judges in order, in Scripture, we think it happened after. But actually, they happened at the same time. Judges, Ruth, and the very first chapters of 1 Samuel all happened at the same time. So now we're going to read the book of Ruth, which first part of the book of Ruth, which happened at, at the same time. And you'll see it says it right in the very beginning. Now it came to pass in the days when judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Melon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. That's the place where David was born. It's also the place where Jesus was born, Bethlehem of Ephrata. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Melon and Chilion died, also both of them. And the woman was left a widow, in other words, left of her two sons and her husband. Now turn just a few pages to the first few verses of 1 Samuel. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim. It means of the area of Ramah, of Mount Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite, Bethlehem of Ephrata. And he had two wives, the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. In other words, she was barren. Again, a verse of scripture that doesn't have the same impact on us that it would have on ancient Jews. A woman without children was virtually considered to be a life without purpose, cursed. Now, if you will, 
Put your hands on your Bible and let's pray together. Father, with our hands on the word and our hearts and minds as open as we know how to get them. We ask that you would do all the rest. Brush aside every barrier to communication. Rush in over the threshold of our souls. That when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken unto us. In Jesus' name, amen. A man named Roy Sullivan was a national park ranger at the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. He was struck by lightning seven times. The likelihood of that statistically is, is phenomenal. I don't know that it's causational, but Roy Sullivan later committed suicide in 1983. I don't know what being struck by lightning seven times does to you. Doesn't make me want to visit the Shenandoah National Park. In 1954, a woman named Ann Hodges was taking a nap on her couch in Alabama when a, a black rock shot through the roof and hit her in the hip. They took the rock to the University of Alabama and the scientists analyzed it and said it was a meteorite. They said the likelihood of a meteorite striking a human being is not one in every 9,000 persons, it's once in every nine thousand years that a human being would be struck by a meteorite. However, if you had told me that a woman lying on her couch taking a nap would be struck by a meteorite, I would guess it would happen in Alabama. <laughs> Husband and wife in Belmont, California in 2002 won two lotteries on the same day. $126,000 in Fantasy Five and $17 million in Super Lotto Plus, whatever that is. Odds makers say that the odds of that happening are one in 24 trillion. However, these are just random episodes of long odds historical events. I wanna talk about something completely different. As I read the scripture and as I observe not claiming to be some huge historian, but as I observe God's activity in human history and in biblical history, I, I believe that it is apparent that God seems to love the unlikely. I believe he loves to operate in unlikely times. He likes to choose unlikely instruments to accomplish unlikely results. Let's look at the passage of scripture with which we read, with which we began. It is an unlikely time in biblical history for anything very good to happen. The book of Judges, it just ends in a nightmare of moral, spiritual, sexual confusion. It's, it's horrible. In fact, the last two stories in the book of Judges are so gritty that, that you can hardly even stand to talk about them in Sunday morning church. And, and it is out of that very moment, the book of Judges ending in confusion, that the next page is the story of the, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is not named for a Jewish woman. The book of Ruth is named for a Gentile. The, the Jewish woman in the story is Naomi. Naomi and her husband and their two sons flee a famine in Bethlehem. They go across the Jordan River into the Gentile country of Moab. And there among the Moabites, they prosper for a season. 
and both the boys get married, which is what they want. They want their sons to get married, but of course they marry Gentiles. That's not exactly the dream of a Jewish mother, have two Gentile daughters-in-law. And things seem to be going okay, and then things collapse. The, the, the famine that they fled in Israel catches them. The husband dies, then the first son dies, then the second son dies. That's when Naomi makes the speech to release her daughters-in-law. She says to them, look, I, I release you from the Jewish law. Jewish law would be that they would have to wait, her to remarry, have a son, that son to grow marriageable age, the first one marry, then the second one marry the second son. She said, I'm too old for that, and you're too old for that. I release you. Go back to your people. And Orpah, the one daughter, does. The other daughter, Ruth, a Gentile, not a Jew, She's the one that makes this famous speech. She says, I'm coming with you. Whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy God shall be my God. Thy people shall be my people. I've been in weddings where the bride and groom said that to each other, but that's not biblical. If you want to use it in a wedding, let the bride turn around and say it to her mother-in-law. See how that works. So Naomi takes this Gentile daughter-in-law and she goes back across the Jordan River, back to Israel, back to Bethlehem. And, and she's got nothing. In fact, she's got worse than nothing. She's a poverty-stricken widow with no grown sons and a Gentile daughter-in-law stuck to the bottom of her shoe like bubblegum. And when she comes into the village of Bethlehem, the people rush out to her with a rhetorical question. Naomi, is that you? And she makes a... a very negative play on her own name. She says, why would you call me Naomi? Naomi in Hebrew means full. Not full like you just ate, but full of blessings, fullness of life. She says, why would you call me Naomi? I was full when I left here, which she wasn't, right? They were, they were fleeing a famine. She says, I was full when I left here, but the Almighty has afflicted me. In other words, she blames God. God has done this to me. So don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mera. Mera in Hebrew means bitter. But more than bitter, it means toxically bitter. She says, in other words, I'm not a woman walking in the fullness of life. I'm an angry, bitter, toxic old widow who blames God. That seems like a pretty unlikely moment for anything much to happen, doesn't it? So she sends her daughter-in-law, Ruth, into the field to glean. Now, that's part of the Hebrew law, ancient Hebrew law that we don't understand, but it was a way for farmers to provide almost accidentally for the poor. They were not allowed to harvest to the corners of their fields, so they had to turn and leave the corners unharvested, and then once the harvesters had gone through a field, they couldn't go back again and clean up. They had to leave everything that was there. The poor people would line the fields waiting for the harvesters to go through and move on, and then the poor people would rush into the fields and pick up anything that was left. Ruth goes out to glean. She comes home with bags full of grain. And Naomi says, you gleaned all this? She said, well, no, not exactly. I was gleaning, and this man came by on his horse and asked me a few questions and, and then told his people to fill my bags up. And Naomi says, tell me about him. So Ruth describes him. And she says, that's my kinsman, Boaz. He is rich. Tomorrow, when you go out to glean, wear some lipstick. 
Little bit of perfume never hurt anybody. So this unlikely moment, a Gentile daughter-in-law of an angry widow meets this guy, Boaz. They marry. They have a child whose name is Obed. Obed gets married. He has a child whose name is Jesse. He gets married, and they have a little boy whose name is David. And David became the king, and St. Paul says, through the DNA, he says the seed, but we would say DNA, through the DNA of King David came Messiah, even Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, from the unlikely instrument of a Gentile widow with a Jewish widow came the DNA that was necessary to present the Messiah by whom we are all in this room saved. How unlikely is that? It, it, is, it is a constant unfolding of unlikeliness. Then you turn the page to 1 Samuel, and there is another woman, a, a woman who is barren, and she is in a polygamous household. I spent so much of my life in Africa, and polygamy is there. You encounter it. I would always meet guys with multiple wives, and Here's the one thing I could never get a polygamist to explain to me. Why would anybody want five mother-in-laws? I, I could never get any of them to explain that to me. So here's a woman in a polygamous household who's barren. She goes to Rama to pray at the tabernacle. And this will give you an insight into how confused the spiritual leadership of the day was. She's praying with such passion, the high priest thinks she's stoned. And so he scolds her. He says, why, you need to get out of this alcohol. Why are you doing this? She says, I'm not drunk. I'm praying. And so he prophesies over her. And she has a baby who becomes the prophet Samuel, who anoints David as the king of Israel. What an unlikely story to happen at such an unlikely time. The Bible is filled with unlikely things like that. I believe that God, it's a dreadful anthropomorphism, but just relax with it for a moment. I'm not being blasphemous. I think sometimes God steps out on the balcony of heaven and looks at humanity and he says, who shall I choose? And the angels are behind him. And when God anoints his choice, the angels all go, yeah, that's good, Lord. Great. That's who we would have chosen. You can almost see it throughout Scripture. When 430 years, the Hebrew people were in bondage in Egypt. 430 years. That's an unlikely time for deliverance. If you want to deal with a crisis, deal with it quickly. The quicker you face the crisis, the, less, the, the quicker it is, the more likely you are to have a deliverance from it. God waits 430 years until the Hebrew people are not only in bondage physically, but emotionally, spiritually. When Moses comes to them and says, the God of your fathers has sent me, they've lived in Egypt so long, they say, what's his name? The Jewish people don't even know the name of their God. That's how, it's a terrible time. And God says, who, who am I going to send to deliver the people, to tell Pharaoh to let them go? Who will I send? I know. There's an 80-year-old man living in the backside of the Midianite desert. The last time he was in Egypt, he committed felonious manslaughter, and there's a price on his head, and he can't talk plain. That's who I choose? And the angel said, mm -hmm. 
Not only that, God says to Moses, I'm sending you to Israel, an 80-year-old man, who, a, a felon. And he says, I'm sending you to Egypt to set my people free. Moses makes, oh, I'm, not, I'm an unlikely choice. God says, you're who I choose. And Moses says, okay, I'll go, but give me something. Give me like a, a magic wand or a, or a flaming sword or something. And God says, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, uh, stick. And God says, perfect. An 80-year-old felon who's been living in the desert for 40 years who can't talk plain with a stick in his hand. Do, do you see what I'm trying to say? It, it, it's, it's, it's a biblical story. It's a biblical pattern. I know, but some of you are thinking, yes, that's all fine, but what about in, in post-biblical history? What about in the secular history of the world? Now, I want to give you some examples of unlikely times in human history. I don't want this to descend into a history lecture, but just, just stay with me for a few moments. In England in 1738... There was an addiction craze that, that hit England. It, it brought the English poor particularly. It was a greater addiction than, than crack or cocaine or, or any of that. It was gin. Gin was easily made. It was cheap. You could make it in your bathtub. It was, and, and it hit the poor people of England, and it was called the gin craze. Look up in Hutchison tells us that the most common street sign in London in 1738 said, get drunk here for a penny. There were 7,000 gin bars in London in 1738. And the London population at that time was only 650,000 people. So I've done the arithmetic on that. I don't know about the greater Houston area, but in the greater Atlanta metropolitan area, there's about 6 million people. If that ratio prevailed, there would have to be 65,217 crack houses in Atlanta to equal that. You see the level of the addiction, which what did it cause? All the things that addictions cause, robbery, prostitution, disease, and a vast rise in child sex trafficking. It's an unlikely time for anything very wonderful to happen. And God says, who do I choose? Who can I send to England in 1738? So there are three boys that are graduating from Oxford, three young men, two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, and another named George Whitfield. They formed themselves into a three-man prayer meeting, which they modestly named the Holy Club. And when John and Charles graduate from Oxford, they decide to be missionaries to the Indians. So they go to the colony of Georgia, and Charles is, they neither one ever see an Indian. Charles is made the private secretary for General Oglethorpe, the founder of the colony, because of his wonderful Oxford education. And John is sent to pastor a church, uh, uh, an Anglican church in Savannah, and he's an unmitigated disaster. A disaster. He goes home to England with his tail between his legs. A fallen missionary, discouraged, defeated. He's five feet, four inches tall. God, I love knowing that. It's rude to laugh at me. And he has a high-pitched nasal voice. He's an overeducated legalist who has failed at his initial effort in missions. 
He writes in his diary on the way back to England, I went to America to save the Indians, but oh, who will save me? And God looks down from heaven and says, there's my man. John Wesley attends a prayer meeting. He is bilingual. He speaks English and German. He attends a prayer meeting where not the book of Romans, as many people will say, but Martin Luther's preface to the book of Romans written in German is being read. Don't you know that was spine-tingling stuff? But when John Wesley hears it, he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And perhaps one of the greatest revivals in all of human history explodes on England and goes across the continents. The Wesleyan revival, one of the greatest revivals of all time, in an unlikely time, using a highly unlikely instrument. Well, let's come a little bit closer to the United States. Following the Revolutionary War, the, the wild frontier immediately after the Revolutionary War. The, remember, the frontier in 1798 was not Texas. The frontier was Tennessee and Kentucky. And it was a terrible time on the American frontier. There were avaricious land grabbers that were forcing poor farmers off of their farms. There was a terrible uh, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, and particularly highway robbery. The, the roads in the American frontier were extremely dangerous. And God said, I, I need an instrument that will bring revival to this, to this wild frontier. Don't you know the angel said, Lord, what about this famous preacher in, in New York? What about this great church in Boston? Why don't you send some wonderful university president? God said, no, no, I, I've got my eye on unnamed preachers in little tiny villages in Kentucky and Tennessee, villages with exciting names like Muddy River and my own personal favorite, Clay Lick <laughs> and Cane Ridge. And the Cane Ridge revival burst into flames. At one point, 20,000 people gathered at a small Kentucky village called Cane Ridge. 20,000. Remember, there's a time with no social media. What brought them out there? In this unlikely time in the American frontier, one of the great moves of God, the holiness revival of the Cane Ridge movement. But let's come a little bit closer. Maybe even some of you, it's nobody in the room as old as I am, but some of you may remember 1967. The hippies, anger over the Vietnam War, all the riots, all the everything, and Timothy Leary told us, tune in, turn on, and drop out. Drop out of American society, tune into drugs, turn on to drugs, tune into what's happening. We all went to San Francisco in 1967 for the summer of love. Anybody remember, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair because you'll find some loving people there. We thought it was going to be free sex and free drugs and free love. We didn't find free love. We found the Zodiac Killer. We found hardened street pimps that turned junior high school girls from the Middle West into street walkers. We found drug addiction and we invented a new disease and we were filled with despair and anger and depression. And the angel said, Lord, who will bring revival to this torn up, tortured country? And God said, I think I'll use the hippies. Barefoot kids who were stoned out of their skull the night before who are now stoned on Jesus. 
And the revival of the, of the Jesus people led to their parents being revived in the charismatic renewal movement, of which I am a fruit, and probably this church would not even exist had it not been for the charismatic renewal movement, particularly for its impact on John Osteen and on your own pastor. Unlikely events in human history, unlikely instruments, unlikely seasons. So what does it mean to us? I found out something the other day. I didn't know. Maybe you knew this. 2020 is now become part of the urban slang dictionary for kind of crazy, bad, dangerous. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I talked to a kid the other day, a high school boy. I hadn't seen him in a long time, and he was alone. I said, hey, what, what happened to that girl you were dating? She was such a cute girl. He said, she was cute, Dr. Mark, but I had to break up with that girl. She went 2020. I didn't even know what he meant. I had to look it up. I mean, this is a crazy, bad, dangerous year, isn't it? I mean, am I the only one? Has this year, I, you know, I just can't, I like can't wait for New Year's Eve. The whole year went 2020. So what, is, what does it mean to us right now in this moment in 2020? Frankly, in any human way of analyzing, this looks like a pretty unlikely time for anything great to happen in America. Confusion, riots, small issue of a global pandemic, economic slowdown, confusion, anger, divided population. I've never seen America as polarized. I don't believe it has been this polarized since the American Civil War. This looks like a pretty unlikely time for anything to happen. I'm neither a prophet nor the child of a prophet. I'm not making a prophecy. I'm not making a prediction. I'm saying if we can track God's footsteps through biblical and world history, we can begin to get a sense of how God acts. If he likes to choose unlikely times and unlikely instruments, then this may be the moment of God. This very may year. So when you hear somebody say, this looks like an unlikely time for God to do anything, say, yes, isn't that exciting? <laughs> when you do that, if nothing else, it will cause them to worry about you. And that's one of the things you want. <laughs> so who might God choose? Whom might God choose? Suppose God says, I need someone to preach the message of racial reconciliation and peace and love and joy and forgiveness and a loving, kind-hearted Christianity. I need someone to, to call the nation to, to the feet of Christ in such a place that, the, that it transcends every cultural divide. Someone that loves beyond any limits. And the angels say, Lord, who do you choose? He says, well, I got my eye on a man. He's a ignorant redneck in a KKK camp in South Mississippi who's shooting an AK-47 at a target of Nelson Mandela. That's my man. I said, Lord, who, who could be the next youth evangelist that would call American teenagers to decency and to new sexual purity and to the respect for authority and to, and to love their parents and honor the rules of the road. Who could do that? And God said, oh, I've got my eye on a boy. 
I saw him at a riot just the other night hitting a cop in the head with his skateboard. He's an Antifa thug. I think he's my man. I'm just saying to you, I'm not prophesying that. I'm saying that is exactly the kind of thing that God would do. Now, what does it mean to us? What does it mean to you and me personally? God may have an unlikely thing for you to do. So you're you're kneeling in prayer someday and you say, oh God, my poor lost brother-in-law has been drunk as Cooter Brown for 40 years. Please, God, send somebody to him. He lives in in a powerless RV out in the middle of the big thicket. He's been stoned out of his skull for 40 years. Send somebody to him. And God says, I've got my eye on somebody. And you say, who, Lord? He says, you. You say, oh, Lord, he hates me. I hate him. I'm the most unlikely person in the world to reach him. And God says, exactly. I'm just saying the unlikeliness of who you are and the unlikeliness of the mission and the unlikeliness of the era in which you live in no way hinders the plan and purpose of God. You may be the unlikely instrument of God in someone's life. Never tell God how unlikely you are. It just gets him excited. (laughs) Well, let uh, let me close with this. When the century changed, 20th century to the 21st, when, when, when we, you remember Y2K? Anybody remember that? The world, the church went nuts. The church went nuts. You remember that? It was crazy. People were crazy. Spirit-filled Christians moving out into the woods, buying log cabins, burying gold in the backyard, buying a gun and stockpiling green beans. Nobody's going to get my green beans Let's say pry my cold, dead fingers. You remember that? The banks are going to fail. The airplanes are going to all fall out of the sky. Remember, I've got a question. Were you really going to shoot anybody for those beans? It didn't seem to occur to Christians to, like, share the beans. Well, it was a crazy time. Actually, the same thing happened at the previous century. From the 19th to the 20th, all the craziness, all the crazy prophecies, new religions, all of that. It was a crazy time. It seemed like an unlikely time for anything much to happen. And God looked into the season and said, I'm about to do something that's going to shake the world. The angel said, this looks like a pretty unlikely time. Lord, he said, it is. They said, well, who do you have in mind? He said, in Houston, Texas, there's an illiterate, one-eyed black man named William Seymour. I'm going to pour my Holy Spirit out on William Seymour and then take him to the most unlikely place in the world. Where could a worldwide revival start? What city? I don't know. I'm thinking the least likely choice in the world would be Los Angeles. And God took William Seymour to Los Angeles. And William Seymour, with a Bible under his arm that he couldn't even read, found an abandoned livery stable on Azusa Street and opened a small mission 
where he preached the baptism of the Holy Spirit and a worldwide Pentecostal revival broke out. The, there are today 279 charismatic, 279 classical Pentecostals. There's another 305 million charismatics. 580 spirit-filled Christians, 580 million spirit-filled Christians worldwide. That all spring, certainly, upper room, but straight through a one-eyed, illiterate African-American preacher preaching in a livery stable in Azusa Street, Los Angeles. That's pretty unlikely stuff. Is this an unlikely time for God to move? It's, it seems to me like it is. It also seems like that's just the kind of time that God loves. Try not to be discouraged. Try not to be defeated. History is not happening to God. God doesn't wake up every morning and pick up the New York Times to find out what's going on. <laughs> whoa, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. In fact, if he's reading a newspaper, it in the Times, trust me. He's watching Fox. No, I'm I'm all right, calm down. Calm, I'm no, the point is this history is not happening to God. History is unfolding in the palm of God's hand. Remember the seven seals in the book of Revelation? Remember that? And John weeps and says, who will come and open the seals? And the angel says, weep not. The line of the tribe of Judah will open the seals. Those seals are the unfolding epochs of human history. Until they open, history can't move on. But those seals don't pop off at random like the buttons off a fat man's coat. They only open by the sovereign decree of the Lord of human history. No matter how unlikely the season, God is still God. Magnify his holy name. <laughs> Praise him in this place. Bow your heads and close your eyes, if you will, and let me pray with you and for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this precious church. God, I thank you for this season. Lord, we, we, are, we are, we confess to you, daunted by how unlikely it is. And when we look at ourselves, who we are, we, we seem like pretty unlikely choices. Even so, we are here, O oh Lord. Send us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and God bless the Ark Church. Would you give me about two more minutes? Bow your heads just for a second. If you came today and said, you know what? I don't know that I have a relationship with the Lord. I'm not sure. Or maybe you said, you know, I had one at one time and I've gotten so far away from God. But I don't want to stay there. I want to come back. We're going to say a prayer. I'm not going to have you stand up. I'm not going to have you come to the front, but I am going to ask you one thing. If that's you that I'm talking about and you say, Alan, would you pray for me? Would you slip your hand up across the auditorium and say, I, I don't know the Lord, but I want to make sure. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Back. Anybody else? Say, that's me. Would you pray for me? Wonderful. Put your hands down. We're going to pray. And maybe you didn't lift your hand. You wanted to, but you didn't. You can still join in on this prayer. In fact, we're going to join you as a church family. We're going to pray this out loud. Pray it out loud 
as well with us so you can hear yourself pray. Say, dear God, I know mankind needs a savior. I know I can't save myself. Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. But God raised you from the dead. Right now, I confess you as my Lord, as my Savior, as the one who forgives me and restores me. Thank you, Jesus, that my past is forgiven, that I have a relationship with you, that I'm a new creation in Christ because I've said yes to you. The heads still bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for those that have prayed that prayer. Thank you for those, Father, who have come into your family and for those who have come back, the rest of us. Thank you that you can use the unlikely ones like us to make a difference for your kingdom. We give you all the praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Guys, let me remind you, there's a card there at, at your feet. If you, uh, if you prayed that with us, maybe you prayed it in time past, or you can, you can text the word in to 313131. The reason we do that is we want to be able to pray for you. Let me bless you before we go. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. We love you. We're praying for you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this message. For more about The Ark, visit thearkchurch.com.